because of the the importance of who he was to me. When you lose something like that, when when something that you have consciously or unconsciously depended upon or just accepted the presence of, yeah, he's been there, you know, all my life. To have that suddenly, there, you know, as suddenly as possible, yeah. you know, uh, disappear is very very unsettling and and uh, to the way that you are in the world the way you see the world and the way that you see other people too because when you die by suicide it creates a mystery really it's a, it's like a mystery story hello friends welcome to grief is a sneaky bitch podcast I'm your host, Lisa Kiefoffer. And in case you're new to the show, yes, this is a podcast all about grief. My guests and I explore the expansiveness and, well, pervasiveness of grief in our lives because, let's face it, 100% of us experience grief, actually multiple times in our lives. I witnessed it time and time again in my career as a social worker and in my personal life, too, with the most significant loss being my husband in 2011. And yet, individually and collectively, we're so grief illiterate, and that's causing us all harm. So I'm on a mission to reimagine grief one conversation at a time, and I'm so glad you're joining me. I'm always fascinated when fiction writers set out to write a memoir, and that's exactly what my guest today did. He's an innovative fiction author who has long been known for his eclectic and unforgettable characters, master storytelling, and his beloved debut novel, Big Fish, the inspiration for the classic Tim Burton film and the Broadway musical. But less known is the knowledge that behind Daniel Wallace's tales of magic and wonder, was one man, the inspiration for much of what followed, his longtime friend and brother-in-law, William Neely. In today's conversation, Daniel and I explore his memoir, This Isn't Going to End Well, The True Story of a Man I Thought I Knew. It's a heart-wrenching and deeply vulnerable portrait of the life and loss of his seemingly perfect and impossibly cool hero. Our conversation explores his brother-in-law's rise in stature in Daniel's imagination, the decades-long friendship they forged, the movie-like adventures and misadventures William embarked on, the incredible care William offered Daniel's sister as she battled a debilitating illness, and the shocking discovery of a version of William neither of them knew when they found his journals in the wake of his death by suicide. A note to listeners. I truly believe we need to have more open and honest conversations about death by suicide, which is one of the many reasons I was so excited to welcome Daniel to the show. If you find the topic too much at this moment, please press pause and search out another episode that might serve you better in this moment. Daniel Wallace, welcome to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm so excited to be able to say those words. Yeah, I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much, Lisa. Yeah, welcome. So the listeners heard at the top of the show, I'm sure already recognized your name, heard about your work as a writer. Many of, probably most of our listeners know about your work that was turned into a film, Big Fish. Um, And this 
of course, the conversation we're going to be having today is about the memoir that you've released recently. This isn't going to end well. If you're watching a video clip of the show, you're seeing it and you're seeing my copy all sticky noted uh, to bits as I like to read books. Um, it's This isn't going to end well. The true story of a man I thought I knew. Really powerful book. I devoured it pretty much in two sittings um, because as if, if you've read it already, or as you will, we're going to try to navigate that lane of not disclosing too much so that people still read the book. But, you know, of course, it's memoir. It's about grief and loss. We're going to be talking about death by suicide. It's about male friendship um, and and about the duality that many of us live, um, these sort of dual versions of our lives. So, so powerful. I'm going to drop a link in the show notes for today's episode. If you follow me at Lisa Kefauver MSW on your socials, you'll be seeing me post about it um, and the, you'll find the links there, but definitely encourage folks to do that. So Daniel, now that we're, we've just spent these last few minutes talking about you, let's welcome you into the conversation. And I, I wanted to start where I start with all of my guests. And I think there's a really interesting parallel we might touch on later in this notion of influence that you talk about in the mm -hmm. book, but I'm always trying to get us to understand where we learned our grief beliefs. Each of us hold a set of grief beliefs, um, but many of us don't really come to recognize what they are until we face some sort of profound loss, particularly in our adulthood. And it's only then that we maybe start to uncover whether our grief beliefs are serving us or not. So I ask each of my guests over the past four seasons to think of a time, an early loss that you experienced, could be death loss, might not be. And how were the adults in your life modeling grief. That's the explicit and the implicit, the naming what is, the not naming what is. Can you, is there something that comes to mind when I ask you that question? Yeah, no, there absolutely is. It's a huge part of my life and it's a two-parter. It's a two-part answer. Okay. Um, so of course it, it goes back to a, me and my first dog, right? Mosby was a black and tan hound dog that, um, I bought actually, I was working at a vet. My first job was working at a, at a vet and the owner had uh, this hound dog, had babies, pups. I was taking care of while they were there and I really wanted one. And he said, all right, you can have one for a hundred dollars. These are purebred puppies. Anyway, I bought one named him Mosby, brought him home. He was just, we were attached to the hip, went everywhere together. In the back seat. I took him to obedience school, and um, I mean, I was I was serious. And you were then, a dedicated dog dad. Yeah, I was dedicated dog dad, and and really, there was a he slept with me. He was in the car with me. There was really very little distinction between the two of us. Uh, and this sounds like a sad movie, but the 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 day he was graduating from obedience school, he ran away and got run over. Um, my first death of any kind. And it was, you know, it was, I mean, I don't want to exaggerate it, but it was devastating. Right. Yeah, and my mother who felt things really, really deeply, uh, so deeply that she couldn't barely stand to feel, you know, she just wanted to stop it. She wanted everybody to be happy. Um, yeah. but she was also just incredibly painfully empathetic. Um, like a week later, she gave me a card, like a sympathy card. And in the card uh, was a hundred dollars. 
and was a note that said, this is the worst thing that will ever happen to you. And as bad as I was feeling, I actually remember thinking, well, that's great kind of because everything's going to be smooth sailing from here on out. My mom said, my mom so, said, so must be true. <laughs> Got to be true. You know, two years later, my girlfriend is killed in a car accident. Yeah. And one of the first things I remember thinking is, whoa, that wasn't the worst thing. Mom was wrong. Yeah. Mom was wrong about that. And um, I was working for my father at the time. It was a it was gap year between high school and college. And um I I you know, I was I was just broken into a million pieces. But after about a couple of weeks, uh I didn't go to work. Uh my dad said, you know, maybe it's time for this to be over. You know, like there's a time for it. And, you know, we did that. And now let's get back to work. Check. Yeah. Right. Uh, And so it was this two parents who met, really meant well, one who felt so deeply that she really couldn't bear it. And the other one who kept feelings completely out because he didn't want to have anything to do with them. They both loved me. In their own ways. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate that story. And just to reiterate and just sort of like to, you know, you were sort of saying this may sound dramatic, but it was really devastating. And just to sort of reaffirm, which is part of the work I do as a grief activist, pet loss can be profound and there's no use in us distinguishing, you know, oh, this grief is more worthy than this grief or this loss. So I, I really hear you. And I think most of us have a pet loss story that, you know, hits close to home. Um, Mm -hmm. So just to honor that, but also to sort of mirror what you were just saying, I think most of us, my reason for asking people about why their parents, how their parents modeled grief isn't about um, catching our parents in judgment. It's really about helping us understand what are the values and the behaviors and the practices and the self-beliefs we end up sort of absorbing sometimes Mm -hmm. by osmosis, sometimes by direct, like, okay, dude's time to move on now. Let's get back to work. Um, But also that we can have these very conflicting things in our family systems. And we don't always know which ones we pick and choose. I remember reading in the story, your parents had very, were very different people when it came to emotions and life experiences and, Mm -hmm. and what they encouraged in you, your mother encouraged the artist and you and the, and your dad really wanted you to follow in his footsteps as a self-made man, as I recall. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 There was a uh, set up from the very beginning. There was a yin and yang going on where each of them were competing for um, the preeminent value in the family. And, and each of them actually worked in a competitive way to undercut the other one. So uh, it was, um, you know, not the way that, that I think that we yearn to be parented no um no at, at all um but uh, you know that it they certainly uh, created some interesting kids that's for sure and uh s- struggling kids but also interesting people interesting people and vibrant and i mean the mm-hmm. way you describe your sister holly who's one of the sort of featured characters i mean this is your memoir so i don't want to sort of talk about william and holly and and your friend Edgar, and even your your girl, high school girlfriend Sally as characters. But I will say, because I want to make sure that we bring their personhood and their life, not just their death, into our 
conversation today, but I will just say, I think because you are, have been a writer of fiction, your mm -hmm. memoir reads like it reads very different than any memoir I've ever read because it has this, you have a way of storytelling that is um, just very engaging. And I will say, of course, as a social worker, and I know you have a social worker as a wife too, there's a way in which you told the story of their lives and your interaction with their stories that was somewhat of a character at a distance and not as much maybe about your interaction. So we're going to, yeah. I'm kind of previewing. We're going to touch into that a little bit later, maybe pulling out some of your own experiences. But what I said at the top of the show was this memoir, this is the central sort of feature in your life, really. And of course, in this memoir was your friend and later brother-in-law, William Neely, um, who you met when he was dating your sister when you were 12, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. Um, and we're going to kind of move through kind of the relationship you had, the things that you discovered, you know, in the wake of his death, which was a death by suicide. But can you bring William into the room with us from your eyes as a 12 year old when you first met him? I think I'm thinking of the like jumping into the pool off the roof yeah. story or just help us start to understand how you first learned to see William, which is very important because what you learned later was there was a very there was that William and there was this other William yeah. that you yeah. don't know. But tell us a little bit about that William, that first yeah. William you, you knew. When it, I saw him for the first time, I was 12 years old. I was this little milk toast kid, um, average in every single possible way, very quiet, very reserved, you know, very skinny and, and kind of, I don't know. I, I felt like I looked fragile, uh, but definitely passive. And I came home and I looked out the, the, the window of our back door and I saw this guy on the roof of our house who was William and he was about to dive off the top of our house into the pool which was 30 feet below and just to to understand the difference in who I was and who he was looking at him my mother had removed the diving board from the pool and it was three feet above the water. He was a 10 times that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So already, you know, he's modeling this person who I never had this opportunity to see that such a person existed in the, in the real world. Here was a guy about to jump off the roof of our house. So to, it, it, it was the first time I saw that there are other ways to be in the world. And of course, you don't think of these things or you're not conscious of knowing these things when you're experiencing them. But up until that point, I'd gone to private school, um, sort of expected I would go into my dad's business. Um, things were very neat in our house. I mean, very, very, uh, you know, we had everything together and it, uh, there was no wild but, impulses and no, you know, yeah, no, no, no. And then to see William, to see this man uh, fearlessly and joyously jumping off. On purpose. On purpose. Yeah. yeah. You know, who, who, who does that? Yeah. Um, that was an example um, that that day allowed me to, to see I, there's another way of living. And this is the relationship that we had for most of his life. Actually, he, was a polymath. 
he could build anything. He could, um, he had the answer to every question. He was like a walking iPhone. Okay. Um, there, there's a part in the book where he writes this bio of himself and he lists, and it's sort of tongue in cheek, but it's actually true. He said, you know, I was a paramedic, a parachutist, a rock and roll drummer. The list goes on for a page and cartographer, a half. illustrator, cartoonist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, and, and it's all true. That's yeah. the crazy thing. It's uh, all true. So there was no one that you would rather want to be with than William and Holly. They were both beautiful, smart, cool. He was uh, masculine without being macho. Yeah. He wasn't aggressive. He, he, he seemed so secure in the world that he didn't have to be aggressive or be obnoxious. He just sat back and just, which was sort of the male model of that time too. Cause we're talking about yeah. the late sixties. What, what era? What, um, what, yeah. The early seventies, early seventies. Yeah. 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 Um, I mean the first we went to, the first thing that we did together, uh, just the two of us, we went to a, a Clint Eastwood triple header at the green Springs four. And it was, um, fistful of dollars for a few dollars more and the good, bad and the ugly. And I don't know if you remember the young Clint Eastwood in these movies, he's called the spaghetti Westerns. He didn't he say was a word. On, he didn't say a word. And in fact, <laughs> and, and he didn't say a word. Um, uh, and you didn't really know if he was good or evil and it turned out, you know, that he was, he was completely broken, but he was on the side of the angels. Yeah. And, and he said so little uh, that nobody knew his name. And so his character was called the man with no name in the credits, you know, Clint Eastwood, yeah. man with yeah. no name. Um, and, and that's, that's kind of how I saw William in a way. Mm-hmm. That's one of Did the you ways. see him back then that way? Cause I know as you wrote and got to know him over, you know, as you went through your twenties and thirties and forties, but even as a young teenager went through friendship, you sort of oh, saw yeah. him that way. Yeah. Oh yeah. Because, you know, after, I saw him off the roof. I mean, I felt like at that moment I started growing my hair out. <laughs> just, just, yeah. you know, that second that I saw him jump off the roof, like I'm going to grow my hair out longer. Yeah. Uh, and then by the time I was 13, so much had changed. There's this thing that happens. I think there are sometimes uh, back then at any rate, between 12 and 13, 13 and a half, where you go from being just this little kid into this, yeah. you know, this, this teenager who, wants to do everything, but doesn't know how. And William could show me, yeah. you know, how, and not show me how, like put me under his wing, but show me how just from me watching him, yeah. just from me seeing him and mimicking him and dressing like him and kind of acting like him. He was never there saying, do this, do that. Um, I was a sponge and I sponged him up. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you talk quite honestly throughout the book in the ways in which you really idolized him, kind of. I don't know if that's the word you would use, but idolized him Mm -hmm. right from the start, um, sort of both for his bravery or his sort of like willingness to sort of try things and go out in the world. Also for his artistic endeavors, which you early on sort of had a hunch like, maybe I want to do this writing thing or there's something here, which was very contrary to this thing that your dad did, which was creating this business. He assumed you were going to, you know, sort of follow in his footsteps. Did, do you think he knew, could you have articulated at that age that you had this 
sort of idolizing relationship with him? Did he know? Did your sister? So he was dating and then eventually married your sister, Holly, who we'll talk also about too, um, who faced her own sort of prolonged illness and probably her own grief yeah. experiences, you know, grieving yes. the body that she, even before her husband died of died of by suicide, but grieving her own body through the course of her illness. But did they know, could you have articulated that you sort of, he was your idol at that time? Did you think you kept it under wraps that he was your idol or they, did everybody know? He, well, on the one hand, uh, no, I would never have said it. Yeah. Uh, but, um, Ever since this book's come out, a lot of people have gotten in touch with me who knew William, of course, and yeah. and they say the same thing. Like he was, he was a hero. He was just he that was, magnetic kind of personality yeah. that people sort of wanted to be in the periphery of, maybe be a little bit like. Even. Exactly, and that's that's a big part of the book, and we can talk about it in a minute. But yeah. he um, he was kind of he was like a mythic hero and he ended up being like a tragic hero eventually in the end. Yeah. Um, but the, um, the, the wonderful thing uh, that happens when you write a book like this, would you write any book, whether it's a novel yeah. or a um, memoir, you don't know what you're writing until yeah. you write it down. You don't, I don't know what I'm saying until I see it. Right. I, and it's a process of this, of discovery as you're probably learning with, you know, or have yeah, I just finished book. my book. Yeah. And I had the same thing. I sort of thought I knew what I was going to be saying. And then I sort of finished and I was like, Oh, I didn't know that's what I was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> those yeah. Were the themes and those were the curiosities and those were the lessons. I didn't even know I knew until I put pen to paper. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a remarkable process. And so much of what I, I learned from writing this memoir, I didn't know before writing it. Yeah. I didn't understand the degree to which William had shaped me, honestly. Uh, it's if I were as smart in real life as I am on the page, I would, I would, I would be rich. I mean, it is, I cannot, I don't know things until I write them down. Yeah. And that's what one of the things that I learned is, wow, this is this happened. And I really, and, and I became me this way, this sense of this influence that um, sometimes happens accidentally, sometimes, you know, through family members, through experiences we can't control. Yeah. And there's like, life is so complicated you really can't, it's hard to like parse things sometimes without really sitting down and figuring it out. I'll, so I didn't know the degree of his influence on me, but I knew how attached I was to both Holly and William and what they represented. And in fact, followed them around, you know, they, they right. moved to, they moved to North Carolina. I moved to North Carolina. I guess I'm going to UNC. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I applied to UNC without ever visiting it. I had yeah. no idea. But they were there. I mean, but they were there. Yeah. yeah. And that was my, that was my vehicle for getting to them. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you touched on influence and there's sort of some parallel conversations speaking of not knowing what you're going to say until you say it the same in the writing, but one of the themes that I thought was really important in the book that I think we can all think about when we think about grieving someone we've become attached to, because that's really what we're doing. Sometimes even when it's not a person, you know, we're grieving our attachment to an idea, to a dream, to a person, to a relationship. But you talked about the 
sort of inexplicable influence that he had on you, including to become a writer, but also this parallel process, which I don't think we see a lot in grief, in the sort of canon of grief, literature, movies, film, whatever, which is really grief over a male relationship, a friendship. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think we see enough about grief around friendships, period, because I think, again, we, in our weird grief, illiterate culture, try to categorize and compartmentalize grief worth, you know, that has value and not. But one of the things that I appreciated in your vulnerability of sharing your friendship with William and the complexity of your friendship and his influence is just sort of modeling a version of a male friendship, which I sort of saw as sort of you guys had a parallel. It's not like you were having deep emotional talks. He he kept himself kind of closed to the world, as did you. You kind of, I called it like parallel play. This is how some friendships are, where we just kind of we go do things. When you look back over the course of that friendship, what what do you think we miss when we don't understand the power of grief over a friendship loss? Like, what did his friendship bring to you, to your identity, to the value in your life? You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. When we come back, Daniel helps us see what we often miss in our grief avoidant culture, that friendship loss can be just as devastating a blow to our sense of the world and our place in it as any other kind of loss. His relationship with his brother-in-law, William, was more profound than he had realized until he set out to write this memoir. By the way, if you love this episode or any of the episodes, don't forget to spread the love by posting about it on socials. And don't forget to tag me at Lisa Kiefhofer MSW. I would love to hear from you. I'm thrilled to share. We still have so many incredible guests coming your way this season. So make sure you're subscribed to the podcast so you don't miss an episode when it drops. Head over to Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button now. While you're there, if you love the show, why not leave a rating and write a review? They mean so much to me and, well, they help get the show out to others who might need to hear it too. I want to share one of the many meaningful reviews I received on Apple Podcasts recently from listener Peaceful and Real. They said, Lisa, I just want to say thank you so much for everything you're doing on the podcast. You're an incredible interviewer. You're intelligent and kind and gentle. I've loved every single one of the podcasts that I've listened to, and I look forward to more. You've got great guests, and you really know how to get the most out of each and every one. Thank you again for all you're doing for all of us on the grief journey. I always share the stories of your great guests with my friends, and recently I've been telling everyone about micro joys, life-changing. Thanks, Peaceful and Real, and thanks to every one of you who have taken the time to leave a rating and share what the show has meant to you. And by the way, I agree with them. My conversation with Cindy Spiegel, author of Micro Joys, reverberates in my mind on a daily basis. Check out that episode if you missed it, and don't forget to pick up her book, too. Would you like to hear from me off air, too? Maybe you're looking for some grief support in your inbox. I'd love to share some behind-the-scenes content of the show, news of when my TEDx talk drops, maybe some sneak previews of my book coming out in spring 2024. 
Also, I am constantly reading, studying, and learning all the time about grief and loss, and I'd love to pass some of that wisdom from others along to you, too. If that sounds good, why not sign up for the not-so-regular newsletter today by visiting lisakiefoffer.com forward slash newsletter. That's lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com forward slash newsletter. In case you're wondering why I call it the not-so-regular newsletter, well, it's because grief isn't on a schedule, and neither is this newsletter. The distinction you're making is really interesting to me because um, I think that maybe without really consciously knowing it or making that choice, we do put relationships on, we grade them kind yeah. of, you know, yeah. like, like there's your relationship with your parents and then there's a relationship with your spouse. And exactly. then romantic is absolutely next. And then there's kind of right, yes. right there. And if, and then, you know, and a lot of people, you know, if you're, if you're not married, yeah, then maybe it's not quite there yet. You know, there's yeah. this judgment sometimes, and then we go on down and then uh, at some point, um, you get to male friendship and it's, yeah. and it's way it's down it's, there. Goodness, yeah. down there. Yeah. It's down there. And I think that's in part because we really, uh, in my experience, uh, don't have the same fr- kinds of friendships that women do. Women share everything. They talk about everything. Men do not, you know, they generally do not. And when I have been in a group of men, I tried to do a men's group once and it just did not work out. I could not do that. Yeah, well, and, and our that. cultural representations of male friendships also, I mean, this is the thing. I don't know that I even believe that there's an inherently men don't or do, but how would you, if you've never watched on screen in your life, in a book, male friends who act any other way than fishing, whitewater rafting, drinking beers, doing drugs, whatever the things are, you know, yeah, right? Abs- so yeah, absolutely. How, how would you? And I will say that doesn't lessen even those those kinds of friendships are different. I want to just be careful to say that wasn't lessening the intimacy or the attachment that you and William shared or that anybody shares in different kinds of friendships. It's, exactly. it's just different. Exactly. It's, different. it's a different kind of intimacy. Yeah. You know, um, we, you know, we define, we have to define it differently, yeah. that yeah. friendship between men yeah. and, and, and really not degrade or demean the a relationship that is born at, through action as opposed to, yeah. you know, this, uh, uh, a soulful or intellectual exchange of ideas and that did happen. I mean, yeah. the idea, I mean, that he had this life experience so much different than my own and he was sharing it with me, you know, he was teaching, you know, teaching me how to fish. He um, taught you how to build a table remotely. Yeah. With sketches. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and then, and then he wrote 10 books and that he, he, he never said to me, you should write he a book dropped too. Out of high school. Dropped out right? of high I mean, school. He had a different, you know, he had a very different path and yet he paved a way in a way. Exactly. For you. Yeah. Yeah. I, he didn't, I, I, I decided I'm not going to, it wasn't important to me to graduate from college because he didn't graduate from college. Um, These people in your life give you permission to do things and uh, by their actions. And if they do it, it's okay. Uh, So um, I didn't graduate from college. He didn't tell me not to, he didn't encourage me one way or the other. I was taking all that in. He wrote 10 books and I looked 
Catanon thought if he could do it, he's a human being, he's a flesh and blood, you know, he's, in, he's much smarter than I am, but I could, if he could do it, maybe I could do it too. And um, so the loss of something like that, the loss of somebody who is really a part of you, right. And, and, and that has, that, that is, that is part of the, the, the thing that's created you. I mean, he have, sort of the created the version of not, he didn't create the version of you, but his presence in your life is sort of, it was a major contributor to this Daniel that we're seeing today. Oh yeah. I say in the book, uh, every book is dedicated to him and in invisible ink because they would not exist. Yeah. Without him, I wouldn't know that such a opportunity to be a writer existed in the world if it weren't for him. And I wonder how many people would be something completely different than the person yes. that they are and maybe happier if they had just known that such an opportunity existed. I think and it's just a good accident, really, for me I that think it that's happened. That's true. Yeah. And because your dad, I mean, you went to work in Japan for a few years at, to try out your dad's business. There was a very equal chance that you could have. And I'm not saying, by the way, working for your dad's business is better or worse than becoming a writer. So if that's your path listener, then that's okay too. But that is sort of the interesting fluke of life is that those two paths could were sort of those representations were both in your life at the same time, but there was yeah. something calling to your spirit maybe, or who, where, however you were meant to be here that William represented for you and was that permission giving for you. Yes. And that relationship, um, because of the, the importance of who he was to me, the, um, when you lose something like that, when, when the, something that you have consciously or unconsciously dependent upon, or just accepted the presence of, yeah, he's been there, you know, all my life to have that suddenly you know, as suddenly as possible, yeah. you know, uh, disappear. It's very, very unsettling. And, and, uh, to the way that you are in the world, the way you see the world and the way that you see other people too, because when you die by suicide, it creates a mystery, really. It's, a, it's like a mystery story. Yeah. Like how did this happen? And you start to you try to figure it out. And as you're going through that process, you're experiencing so many different feelings. Um, it's this, it's, I don't want to know if it, I don't want to, I don't know if it's a spiral or a evolution or a de devolution. I think yeah. there's, there's just one thing happening after another. And especially in Will, William's case, because of what happened later. Yeah. Yeah. With the, gonna, with the journals, with the journals and discovering, because not everybody will end up having that in the wake, especially of a death by suicide is, you, in a way, got to learn a lot of things that I think so many families struggling with the death of a loved family and friends struggling with the death of a, a loved one by suicide don't ever get the answers to. And though this this ambiguous loss that, you know, you face that so many people face again in the wake of lots of kinds of deaths, by the way, not just death by suicide. Um, you got some I'm not going to say closure because the myth of closure is just that it's a myth, but you got some information in the end, which we'll touch on um, here as we move forward and, and sort of, I'm trying to unravel the interview as we unravel, you, you beautifully unravel the story, which is interesting since we know at the beginning of the book that this isn't going to end well. Um, but anyway, so you got some information about 
some insight really into this other, you know, what William's brain was, what, how William was thinking all along, by the way, it, as it turns out, like kind of the entire time of your relationship. So, you know, by the time you be, move into adulthood, you are moving into a writerhood. Your William is now in, an, they were sort of off and on for a while in relationship with your sister, but your sister very young came down with rheumatoid arthritis mm -hmm. that began to pretty immediately impact her physical mobility, her right. well-being, right? And right. and instead of retreating, your who became your brother-in-law, William sort of said, okay, this is it. I'm going to build a house that's going to make things accessible for you. We're going to mm -hmm. come, like, come together, which I think later on you sort of discovered part of what drew William away from maybe his darker impulses or his tendencies towards depression was to, to rescue others, not rescue. I don't want to put that language about Holly, but to be in service of others. Is that fair to say? Yeah, I think yeah. that's definitely taking care of other people was one of his main modes of existence. And he did it in his personal life and he did it in his professional life as a, a cartographer. His books are all about how to live, how to live safely, how to, how to navigate, how to river. navigate deep waters. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you can go so many different places. There's a lot metaphor. of metaphors. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I love metaphors. My <laughs> listeners know that, but yeah, I mean, I did think there was some, but here's the thing, just like your books, you're always working out the sort of, not always, because I know you have other novels that we don't maybe haven't read or, but there's this theme like in big fish and in this book where you have characters who have this duality, kind of these mm -hmm. different things. And I do think in all of our, all of us who are pursuing some creative endeavor, you know, in whatever we're doing, I mean, I freely admit this in the, all the work that I do is, I think we have a central curiosity and that we're trying to work out for ourselves mm -hmm. in the sort of artistic creation that we do. And in some ways, I wonder if Williams in service of others, his sort of helping people navigate hard waters in the cartography and the cartoons and the illustrations and the caring for your sister was his own way of trying to figure out how did he navigate his own way out of his own deep waters. I don't know if that's too. No, I, I, William, but. but I mean, again, this is a mystery story. Yeah. Um, and, and we're I, in this book and, you know, and I continue um, even talking today, I, I get these different like illuminations on, on on him on on where I am in it because it's not yeah. it's not something that you write a book and it just stops. I, you're right? done. Just, <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm done with this. You know. Well, I'm um, sure every time I you talk about it, you pick up something new. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And I feel like I wish I could write the book again because the, I'm learning some more yeah. and more all the time, and it 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 it, um, it really does make me think. Ah, I wish that. I wish I could have had that in the book. I wish I could have had that in the book and you'll feel the same way. Believe me. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, it has any, I'm getting the reviews back from the publisher now to do my edits and I'm already like, Ooh, do I have time to like, <laughs> yeah. and I'm sure once it comes out in the world, I will immediately want to make some attempts. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But he, um, he wanted to save people. I think because he didn't know how to save himself. Uh, he, that was the central problem of his life that he could not overcome. Yeah. He could do almost anything else. He could almost 
figure everything else out. I mean, he was the handiest handyman creative person. Yeah. 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 Um, um, But uh, when Holly got sick, when she was just 21, they were kids, right? He had an opportunity at that time to say, you know, this is not going to work out for us. I'm, I'm a river guy. I'm going to be outside all the time. How are we going to do this? He chose to stay, to take care of her and not just to take care of her, um, but to give her a life to, um, that tired hackneyed expression, um, your other half, you know, you talk, they talk, he, he, he really literally was her other half. He provided her body. He was, he, 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 he made her life possible so they could travel. They could go to the river. Um, he, at one point she strapped herself. She, she duct taped her arms to paddles in a canoe so she could go paddling with him. And this is after her arthritis was just all over the place. And she just, she couldn't not do it. You know, she wanted so much to be there. Uh, but he made this possible and all he would want, all he wanted to do in that first decades of, of his adult life is somehow save her. Yeah. And that was why I call him a tragic hero because his desire, this really great, good, great and good desire to save somebody else ends up being the thing that turn turns against himself and which leads to yeah. his death by suicide. Yeah. I, I, I got this feeling as we got to know William throughout the story, which we got to know sort of, sort of forward view, like as you knew him in life. And then, as you said, in the wake years, you, in the wake of his death, which we can talk about in a minute, you got to see another view of him because you unearthed, you know, decades worth of journals, a lot of which were to-do lists, but you got to see another side of him. And I get you, so we got to know William a little bit. And I did get this feeling that from kind of the bullied young child to the child who had been hurt by a very formidable person in his life, that he was, he couldn't quite save him. His dad passed away when he was a teenager from alcoholism, right? So Mm -hmm. he couldn't quite save himself, protect himself. And it did feel like he was out in the world doing these beautiful things and being this complex person trying to save others while he was um, sort of partitioning him off from himself. You know, you talked in the story, which really captivated me too, about the duality of William's story. So there was this story that the world knew of him, the ones we've told of him as a cartographer and a creator and an adventurer and a carer of other people. Um, But that there was also this man who, as it turned out, lived with suicidal ideation his whole adult life, I think maybe even going back to his teens. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this struggle and that he, and I wish I would have, I've bookmarked so many things in here and I can't remember, but there's a line in there where you discover even his journal. Um, oh, it was one of the pages I bookmarked wow. when you were sort of discovering that he said, I must all caps in one of his journals, I must not let them see who I really am. Right. So yes. that he was even aware of this duality that he was living these two lives, this life of internal suffering and struggle and sort of defeat and suicidal aviation while he was sort of this hero to others, this creator, this adventurer. 
And yes. we really, we, my listeners know I'm a narrative therapy is my training. So I know that we create our meaning through the stories that we tell and we need a comprehensive story, which is why death loss or loss of any kind can be so problematic for us because we're sort of operating without a story for a while. We have to sort of yeah. write in, into this emerging story of our lives. That's the metaphor I use. But he was living a life fully where he had these competing stories. What did it do? How did you feel when you read those words? I must not let them see who I really am. What, what did that do yeah. to the person who idolized him? I mean, you know, yeah. that was a very clarifying moment um, that seemed, you know, in a, in a narrative sense, because we talked earlier about these real people being characters. Yeah. Um, there is a, a narrative in this, his story, like a book and, and, and reading that in the journal brought everything to the surface, which was that um, he had very consciously created a second self for himself. He was trapped in a way in his, we were talking about um, the, the terrible thing that happened to him in the, uh, when he was a kid as a scout, but he had been using the scouts um, as a way out of his, his childhood. And this was going to be his new life. And he was great at it, yeah. you know, and it didn't work out. But so he, I think at that time, uh, he started to cr create the second self yeah. while keeping the other self still there. I mean, we talk yeah. about the inner child. It's not really an inner child yeah. for him. I to think me, it's almost, a, is, I don't, it's a traumatic, I mean, there was a protective factor. Like I need to be this other person who can, there's, you know, yeah. I mean, that's a response to that sort of trauma. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a veneer that, uh, or even like a carapace, like a turtle. Um, you know, if you think of a turtle as having yeah. two cells, you know, the shell and what's inside the shell, yeah. he, he had done that. It's like, and, but knew it, right. It wasn't, yeah. it, it wasn't something that was a mystery to him. He had, cause he had created this carapace yeah. assiduously. And, um, it's like, you know, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde really don't know each other exists. Yeah. Right. They, yeah. They're, they're, they're only one thing at this at one time, but he was both of those things at, at the same time. And you cannot live that way. Yeah. You cannot, I mean, it's going to, you're going to blow up and he, you know, the bifurcation just, um, eventually, um, so, so intense, uh, especially when one of them starts to fail on you that, yeah. and that's what started to happen to him. He had developed this outwardly, um, very masculine and, uh, talented physical specimen. You know, he could climb he was an mountains. Adventurer. Yeah. Yeah. He was an adventurer. Yeah. And then his body started to fail on him. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that, that's part of his life support system. And, and once that started to go there, one of the, one of the two or three things that I see saw in having read his journals yeah. that pushed him to the place that he had always been on the road to, but it, uh, he had, he had allowed himself to stop before he got there because of his love for my sister. When we come back, Daniel explores what his sister Holly did and mostly didn't know about William's struggles. 
He also explores how discovering William's journals and getting insight into a version of him neither of them knew added a unique layer to their grief. Because the truth is that Holly didn't just lose a husband and a caregiver and Daniel, a brother-in-law. What they were both forced to grieve is a version of William they never got a chance to know. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. You're listening to Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Hey, this is a special thank you to the many listeners who've already picked up some Grief is a Sneaky Bitch merch. If you're one of them, I'd love to see you sport the merch. So don't forget to tag me on Instagram at Lisa Kefauver MSW. And in case you didn't know, yes, you can now get all kinds of grief as a sneaky bitch merch from teas and hoodies to journals, coffee mugs, and stickers in my grief happens shop. I'm actually dropping a new line of merch now that I'm calling cancer can fuck all the way off. I think like grief is a sneaky bitch. It's a sentiment we can all get behind, but don't worry. I've got some of my love and light messages coming soon to the grief happens shop too. So if cussing isn't your thing, I got you covered. Shop now at the Grief Happens Shop at lisakefauffer.com today. That's Lisa, K-E-E-F-A-U-V-E-R.com. Friends, I absolutely love hosting this podcast. And while it's central to my work as a grief activist and my mission to create a more grief literate culture, Did you know that I also have the great fortune to show up in other places too? I write about grief in various places, including my forthcoming book, Grief is a Sneaky Bitch, published by UT Press coming in 2024. But I also serve as adjunct professor of loss and grief at the University of Texas, Austin. Also, organizations across the country invite me to help them create grief smart workplaces as a keynote speaker for their significant events or to deliver workshops. You know what's really cool? So many of these invitations have largely come from listeners like you. So if you're looking to bring grief education, awareness, literacy, or support to your workplace or event, drop me a note. Visit www.lisakefoffer.com. So that thing, that sort of artifice that he had built that sort of kept the momentum going, which was being this adventure when his body, he, I, t- I remember he was just had a lot of back pain. And I'm sure all the crazy stunts that he pulled, you know, and also mm-hmm. as we age, you know, yeah, these yeah. shells don't you know hold up so well anymore. Yeah. Um, started to really take a toll. Um, I don't want to go into the details of his death, except to say that, as you said, not only had he been keep, and not only did he have this sort of bifurcated story, nobody in the, he was not, you know, suicide, suicide ideation can, is most dangerous when it's kept inside. And it often is kept inside because it holds some sort of power, right. For, mm-hmm. for the person. And there's so much fear of sort of what will happen if they let it, if let it out. And, um, but I wonder because William died by suicide at 48 and your sister lived another 10, 12 10 years, years exactly. 10 yeah. years. Exactly. Mm-hmm. His, his time of his death was a very planned out. He yes. had sort of weeks, right. Of really, and he 
was figuring out how to do it in the way that Holly wouldn't discover him. In fact, he left notes to have you be contacted. And there's a whole sort of, as I said, this plays out like a movie, which often is the tragedy of so many of our lives, right? But I wonder in the aftermath of his death and the conversations that you had with Holly over the years, did she have this, was the curtain pulled back for her the way it was for you? Did she have suspicions that he had been living this sort of duality that he had struggled with suicide ideation or was she almost as in the dark as you were? I think that she was almost in the, as in the dark as I was because we talked about everything we talked about and she never, ever addressed that. Uh, so I, I do believe that he was able to sequester that other self, even from her. Uh, he, he saw psychiatrists, he's on medication. I mean, I don't, of course I can't, I, I wanted to find out, I wanted to talk to his psychiatrist to find out what was going on in there, but of course they can't tell me. Of course. Which is yeah. a drag. Yeah. Um, <laughs> a drag, but also yes, good for our own protection when those of us go see psychiatrists and yeah. social workers yeah. and therapists. Yeah. 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 They were, she, she, after he died though, he, she did read his journey journal she found his journals she was the first one to find them and um i just judging from some of the notes that she wrote on the journals uh she was she was as shocked as as i was yeah but the what, what was really uh to me um eye-opening was that she never told me oh I found all these journals and I'm read it, re- reading them. And that was because um, I feel like she had always presented this idea of an ideal relationship to the world that they had solved all the problems yeah. and they had created a perfect life to people in love. And she couldn't let that go. Even after he died by suicide. Yeah. 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 Uh, she mythologized him and them to yeah. herself. You know, I think I appreciate you saying that. I was wondering, cause I knew, I remember you sharing that she had written notes in the margin so that she knew mm-hmm. later, but you know, something you just said, I want to just sort of pull back sort of in the zoom lens for all of us who've experienced all kinds of losses, whether it's parental loss, which I know you've lost your father too, or friends or spouses, you know, yeah. is, I think it's a very natural and common occurrence for us to, you know, part of what we're grieving is their presence, their physical presence in our lives. But oftentimes when we discover things about the people that we loved who died for, again, from whatever source, we're desperate to hold on to the meaning that we had made of that relationship at the time when they were in our lives. Mm -hmm. And it's not just when new information comes to light. Oh, I found out he had an affair or she did a thing, but even just the part of how we want to hold on to our memories and why storytelling and carrying someone's memory for it is so important is that part of what we're trying to not lose tether of is the meaning we've made and the experience that we've made. So I can imagine for your sister that that was ter- it was terrifying in the first place to lose him because she was the, he was the man that she loved to lose him because he was her primary caretaker. She was mm-hmm. quite progressed in her disease at that time, but also afraid to 
lose if he wasn't who she thought he was or their relationship wasn't what she thought he was what has been my life i mean loss can e- erupt a sort of revelation about our own identity stories who are we what have we even been doing where are we even going so i imagine exactly. she experienced that but you did too i would imagine as you came to understand this is the the man that i thought i knew how was your right. own grappling with I thought I had this relationship with this guy that I thought I knew. Yeah. What was that that process for you of uncovering that he wasn't the guy you thought he was, or he wasn't just. He wasn't just Just. exactly. He wasn't just the guy I thought he was. He was so much, so much more. Um, It was, uh, I don't know how other people uh, go through this, but um, we were all shocked and devastated at first. And so there was just this overwhelming grief and sadness that attends those that that immediate moment after the event. So I I I don't know how I found it, but and I don't know who recorded it, but somebody recorded uh, one of his memorial services where I I I spoke and I do talk about him in the, the memorial service the way that I talk about him in the beginning of the book as being larger than life, being the dude, the man, everything to me. Um, and that lat that persisted for a bit, and but then, as more time passed, and I saw the reality of what was happening to Holly yeah. in his absence, yeah. that I I I couldn't believe that he would make this choice, that he would yeah. that no matter how bad things were for him, I started to. I started, I sort of started to judge and say, you know what, it it wasn't that bad. You could, you could, you could have done this, but no, you chose not to, um, as, uh, anger and resentment. Yes. There was a ton of anger. I mean, and then when she, um, died just, I mean, 10 years later, she was completely used up. I mean, she'd used up every cell in her body. Um, she was, there was nothing left. Uh, but those 10 years were you know, a decade of, of sickness and madness, really. Uh, and, and then her death put the, the sort of the, the final chapter on, on that part of our lives. I, I really unloaded on William. I mean, <laughs> if he had been here, yeah. I mean, I was, I mean, still I was unloading on him in our, uh, in my day to day life. And, I, I honestly, as much as I admired and loved him before, I did, I ended up really despising him. Yeah. I, I, I threw away a lot of his work, a lot of his maps. Um, I didn't, I didn't want it around me anymore, you know, after everything that he'd done to Holly and, and, you know, obviously I'm sure it was a little selfish. And to you. Well, and to me. Yeah. 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 I mean, um, so um, there's a scene in the book where I think this, you know, the ultimate, um, the worst possible thing I could do, I did. Yeah. Separating their ashes. Yeah. 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 Tell us about that because you, I do feel like because there's, you come around, of course, at the end of the book to try to sort of rectify that situation. But, you know, honoring someone's wishes and rituals is, of course, important. We think about when we think about sort of mourning and our, and our, the solace we find in the wake of loss. And sometimes the reality is we have, 
in your case, we feel a lot of anger and resentment and rage, maybe because of death by suicide. Sometimes we didn't have a healthy relationship with the person in life and how we want to honor their wishes. But your sister had left a note saying, I want our ashes together. Yeah. And tell she us a little bit about William. what happened. Yeah. So after William died, I was Holly's plus one when we went to the emergency room because we went to the emergency room a lot to the hospital a lot for operations and in one of them she said i'm i'm gonna die this time i know i am and she hand wrote a, a little holographic will and in it she said i want my ashes put with william's ashes and mixed up and then thrown into the air um in our property that we used to own and um she did not die that time but she did die later and i had her ashes i had william's ashes and a, and i had a bunch of other people's that my wife and i had a bunch of people's ashes we had my mom's ashes her mom's ashes i don't know why they all yeah here, you guys but, ended up being the repository <laughs> yeah of all these ashes and um so my antipathy towards william became so, so intense for me that I, I couldn't justify putting his ashes yeah. with her. This because Holly was a, I you know I was was a she, nobody's a saint, but she's a, she was she, she was as close as they come. She yeah. was as close as they come. Yeah. Sweet person would not hurt a fly, and and William actually would not hurt a fly either. Except I know. him. And every all the all, and 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 as everybody probably knows, there's the 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 ramifications from a death by suicide are immense and forever. Yeah. Anyway, I couldn't do it. I couldn't put their ashes together, and I took his ashes out in the backyard, not Holly's ashes, yeah. just his ashes, and I poured them out yeah. into the weeds. Looking I back, didn't even tell my wife. I didn't looking back, tell what was what was going through your mind in that time? What did you feel like you were? There was kind of a white noise, you know, and and I. So much had happened, you know, that uh, William and and then in between William and Holly, um, Edgar, yeah. uh, who was our friend and their best friend, was murdered. Uh, all all. Of these things came, I think, to some sort of emotional head, and um, I did this very rash thing, which I immediately. I mean, which regretted. many people do in the wake of loss. By the way, <laughs> pretty rash yeah. things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and didn't tell my wife for the longest time because I, in, in, in any. If you don't tell your wife something, you know something. You know, you, know you did something you're wrong. You're not aligned with something that you did. Yes, agree, right. agree. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was after that that happened that I started reading his journals. Yeah. Of course, it was so. I had to go through a, a lot of um, a lot of deep thought and research, talking to people to discover whether I felt like it was ethically right for me to do do that to read his own private journals which weren't meant for publication yeah. you know i talked to a lot of people about that and talked to other memoirists and people who had had dealt with um uh, lots of uh, historical people's um diaries yeah. and whatnot yeah 
um, and finally came to the decision that that I would do it. Um, and I wish that I had done it sooner because if I had done it sooner and understood who William was and the struggle that he had through the course of his life, I would have a greater sense of compassion and grace. And, and I think whenever we understand somebody, we are much more likely to forgive uh, or at, at the very least you take them out of this dark place and put them in a, a, a place um, where you understand yeah. who they were yeah. and why they made the decisions that they did. So it, it, it was um, reading the journals was turned out, I believe to be the best thing that I could have done for him and for my relationship with him and understanding the complexity of what a human being really is, because I feel like we're all like William and not as definitely not as, yeah. as exaggerated as, as, as he is, but we closet off some part of ourselves um, for what, for all the different kinds of reasons, fear, usually some sort fear of not being loved, fear of, of being hurt. And uh, his example was just, that writ large, yeah. mm-hmm. very extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Did you learn? I appreciate you pointing that out. Cause then I, maybe we touched on that earlier too, but I do think we all have, whether it's from childhood traumas or life traumas or hurts or, you know, lots of sources, we all walk in different spaces with different aspects of ourselves. We all have on armor. It's not, we don't need to judge it necessarily as good or bad, but we all have some version of that. I think his was quite, um, extreme, as you said. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard you say in other interviews, you sort of don't feel like that, that you feel like you live kind of as you are, but did, did finding some, it sounds like some, and you maybe wouldn't use the word forgiveness, but finding some compassion, some understanding for the, the complexity of who William was, does that shift how you are in relationship with others in the world, even other people in your life that might have some maybe complexities or some struggles. Mm -hmm. What did that teach you about moving forward in other relationships? Well, I mean, for myself, I, I overshare, I I will tell you almost anything. And sometimes I have to be really careful. Um, But uh, but I'm with me all the time. And that's really not, um, that's a whole, that's, that's one, a a separate issue. But um, being with, other people and seeing that the the choices that they make, the way that they react, the way that um, uh, the the choices and actions that you may not understand or even agree with, once you realize that there is a reason why these things are happening, yeah. as as irrational as they might seem, there is a basis there. There's a lifetime of experience that's creating a person who is going to make these decisions and, and understanding that, that there is a backstory. Like yeah. we're, you know, like you and I right now, we're dealing with each other in the moment. Yeah. Um, you don't know. But we got, <laughs> got a lot. We got I'm a almost lot. 52. I got a lot of baggage back. There's then. a, yeah. there's a, yeah. you know, um, yeah. and, and, and I, yeah. And, and I, I think baggage is, is, is seen as, as a, as a, 
I think we use it as a kind of a negative, but it yeah. it's actually exactly what it is. You know, like here's here's the bag when William died, and here's the bag when you know my parents died. And I mean, here's another this. another better metaphor is really just our story. We have, you know, yeah. I have fifty one years of stories that that not everybody who sees me when I'm on the podcast or on TV or doing something knows, and all of us have those complexities. And I think, yeah. you know, I've heard a lot of conversations over the years. And a lot of different viewpoints around death by suicide, around the value or importance or not of forgiveness. And I'm not here to take a stand on that. And I think to your point, at the very least, the gift that we might give if we can find our way to it is to just zoom back out to remember that this person who we knew or thought we knew or knew a version of had more story than what we knew. And that information and that story made logical sense for them to make the choices they make. It doesn't mean we condone it or approve of it. Right. But I think if we can see the humanity that that person has a more complex story that led them to those decisions, maybe there's some more ease or some solace. I'm not sure what the right word is, but. You know, you mentioned earlier, I, not every, I, I'm not everybody has this, well, um, chance to discover uh both sides of somebody in such detail and knowing somebody your whole life and then and then reading about their the other life that they were living yeah Yeah. outside of my perception uh once you if we were all able to do that i definitely think that we would have a much different world i don't know why we you know why we can't work toward that it, 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 but it, because it seems the it seems logical that if we know our if we know ourselves to have a past um everybody else does as well yeah william's past his story his secret story isn't secret anymore yeah. and that's a really valuable thing for for me to know personally but also for other people readers who have gone through this. I mean, suicide, you know, more people die by suicide than are killed by handguns in the country. What happens one every 10 seconds, yeah. somebody dies by suicide, which yeah. it's unbelievable. It's- um, but, but, but what's even the, what's even more um, um unbelievable if you haven't experienced it is is the effect of what um a suicide does to a, a family a community and even a community yeah it's 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 that when somebody decides makes that choice and that's how you think about it somebody making a choice to do it there we attach a lot of meaning to that that we don't do with a car accident for instance but and part of that is, I think, because we make some assumptions that we knew the circumstances in the backstory yes. of that person's life. And yes. so we're, we're viewing that as a choice because we're seeing it from only the information that we've had the privilege sort of to see. And yes. it sounds like you being able to go through those journals years later allowed you to see a, a fuller story of William's life and what led to ultimately to his death. Yeah. 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 I, and, and knowing that, uh, if it, it is truly a, a gift, these journals are truly a gift. And I, 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 because I do believe that as, as private as so many of us are and as secretive as so many of us are, 
I think in our deepest hearts, we want to be known. We want somebody just to embrace us in our entirety and all the good and the bad and the broken. And even though William worked his whole life to keep that broken part secret, even in the, the, even in a deeper part of him, he wanted to be known. Um, that's why I believe that those journals weren't burned, weren't thrown away. He had weeks. He had, he knew he could have destroyed them. Yes. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But he left them for, um, Holly to read and Holly didn't destroy them either. Yeah. And in fact, in a interview, uh, a year and a half after William died, she said, Someday somebody's going to write a story about William's mind, and turned out somebody to be you. did. Yeah, turned yeah. out to be you. Yeah. No, I appreciate that so much, and I think, you know, just maybe as we wrap up, just what you said there, I think, is so profoundly important when we're talking about those of us who are walking through grief. When we're talking about somebody struggling with, you know, significant depression or other things like what William discovered is. It is our actual human sort of, I mean, belonging is sort of our human call, right? We want to feel this sense of belonging and to feel seen and held exactly as we are. And I think so often, and this is, you know, a topic for another day, but the constructs of our culture and our systems and our policies and all the things that show up in our life trick us into believing that we don't have value and worthiness Mm -hmm. exactly as we are. And so that causes us to sort of either retreat or bifurcate ourselves into this sort of public private versions of ourselves. So Mm -hmm. I do think any chance we get, which is why I bring guests on the show to talk openly and honestly about their grief. When we share our own stories, whether it's in memoirs like yours or in other places, I hope that we're cracking away at this false belief Mm -hmm. that we have, that we only have worthiness or value or only worth being seen in some perfected state of ourselves. Right. Yeah. And I think that is a gift you gave yourself, but also I think you gave to the world by sharing William's story, Holly's story, your story too. Yeah. Thank you so much. Um, I, I'm, this is the first and probably last uh, memoir that I'll, that I'll I'll write. And it's different. Being a writer of a a memoir is different. I'm sure being a writer of novels. Let me tell you. I'm sure. I'm sure. Well, I'm going to pick your brain about that off air. Yeah, in a minute. Well, Daniel Wallace, thank you so much for joining us today. Y'all, if you haven't read This Isn't Going to End Well, The True Story of a Man I Thought I Knew. Again, I tried to really, there's a whole true crime aspect, his friend Edgar. There's just, there's just a, it's a page turner, if that is even an appropriate thing to say about a memoir, but it is. So definitely check the link in my bio and pick yourself up a copy of the book. Um, Daniel, thanks so much for sharing yourself, your family's story with us today, William's story. I really appreciate it. I'm so happy to have been here. This is great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Grief is a Sneaky Bitch podcast. Don't forget, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to the show so you're notified immediately when the next episode drops. I want to thank Guile Smith of Alafia Sounds for creating the music for the show today and the team at Permanent Record Studios for producing it. I'm your host, Lisa Kefauver. Until next time, I see you, I hear you, 
and I'm holding you in my heart.